Good afternoon and welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Cass Carter and Stephen Jacoby with me this afternoon. Uh, we have had a big response to uh, the situation of the news on MIQ. What were your experiences? A big response. And thank you for those. Text me 2101. Well, the Chief Ombudsman, Peter Boschier, has today released the findings of his investigation into the managed isolation allocation system, follows hundreds of of complaints. He concluded that the lottery system we ended up with did not account for individuals in particularly dire circumstances. The Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment was responsible for the system and Boschier has concluded that the omissions in their advice was quite unreasonable. He specifically pointed to the recommended virtual lobby system, which did not cater for many New Zealanders who had a genuine or urgent need to travel, as well as a failure to undertake an analysis under Tetareti or Waitangi. Here's just one just come through from a lawyer, Aidan. Kia ora, Wallace. As a lawyer, I acted for a number of people who needed exemptions from MIQ to say goodbye to dying relatives. The system was arbitrary, opaque, and even when there were rules, they were not applied consistently, often in circumstances where there was little or no risk of causing an outbreak. We lost sight of our compassion somewhere along the way, is uh, this lawyer's point of view. But with us now is Yvonne, who is from Little River. Yvonne, kia ora. Uh, Hi, Wallace. How are you doing? I'm very well. Tell us your story. Uh, Well, my son was uh, was in Germany. Fortunately, uh, he was with his partner's family, um, and they were looking after an older relative of the family's which meant that he had accommodation. But the the conditions of his visa meant that the amount of money that he could earn whilst he was over there was severely limited. Um, it, he could only earn, I think it was 450 euros a month, which meant that then he was heavily dependent on uh, his partner's family connections over there for accommodation, food, internet access, you name it, everything he was dependent on. So when I brought this up with various ministers and said to them, how is somebody supposed to live overseas? There are no jobs because everything's shut down overseas as well. How are they supposed to live? There was, there was no mention or, or any kind of government assistance for those people who were stuck overseas um, in order to assist them just to live and they couldn't get back here. He was desperate to get back here. How long did this go on for? Oh, good 18 months. 18 months? Yeah. So um, in September of 2020, he was in Cambodia. And, of course, Cambodia was heavily hit with, uh, with, with COVID. They didn't shut down. But, of course, what happened was, was their, their tourist industry collapsed because – um, they had no tourists, so uh, he couldn't get a job there. He was uh, he, he was rapidly running out of money. He couldn't get back here, so what he did was he went because there were no flights. So he went to Germany, um, and he was then there, and then he was working to try and get get a spot in MIQ. Then for eighteen months, and of course, there's no record of any of this. There's no record of who was on, who was trying to get into MIQ, the number of times they tried, because, because the lottery system didn't allow for that. It didn't allow for desperation. Needless to say, 
What a stressful time. What do you say to those, Yvonne, who, and there are, I'm going to be um, really honest with you, there are many people who are pushing back against this decision saying, look, um, we're grateful for MIQ. It kept us safe. Uh, it is unfortunate that people got stuck overseas, but for the five million of us here, we were safe and living normally until vaccines and treatment knowledge arrived. What would you say to them? I would say that's an alternative view. You're, you're quite right. But I've got a very personal view on this, and that was that my son was stuck overseas. I couldn't go to him. He couldn't come, to, he, he couldn't come home. He is a New Zealand citizen. His, his passport states that he has the, reti- the right to return home here. That is a United Nations requirement, that if you are a citizen of that country, you can return home. So in, in my opinion, what the New Zealand government did was illegal. All right. Hey, Vaughn, thank you for uh, being with us. And um, look, I appreciate your time on the panel. Kia ora. Now, uh, we will bring our panellists in, but listen to that with Professor of International Law, Al Gillespie from the University of Waikato's Faculty of Law. He has followed this uh, story right through. Uh, Professor Gillespie, welcome. G'day, Wallace. How do you read these findings? And, and are you surprised by the findings uh, by the Chief Ombudsman, Peter Beauchier? Uh, not really. I mean, this is very much a reflection of an earlier High Court decision. Yeah. And they're both saying similar things, and that on the whole, MB did pretty well, and it was commendable. But the approach they adopted over certain things like MIQ was blunt, and it should have been more specific. And the big question from here, I mean, obviously it will go to the Royal Commission when that happens, but what the Ombudsman is really pointing at is whether there'll be an apology from the Minister, because he suggested that there should be an apology from MB, but he hasn't got the authority for the Minister to make one. Oh, right, OK, very interesting. Now, let's go on the panel, let's bring them in. Cass? Yeah, I've interesting perspective from Wellington, and this is when I say some of my best friends worked at MIQ and they worked their butts off the whole time and they were constantly up against some massive right. decisions and I think they did a really, really good job, certainly at the start, and they were up against some difficult things. The thing is that um, we had floods of people wanting to come back into the country and they, and they all had to go and stay in a, in a hotel or residence for a certain amount of time and there wasn't enough room. So that's why they introduced the lobby system, um, or the lottery system, they called it lobby, I think, um, and because um, there's only so many beds available, and then and they did have a, quite a robust system in place to look after people with, with true special needs to travel home urgently. I think the problem is that there were some decisions that were made outside that system, like for example the Wiggles, which caused all sorts of, sorts of uproar, um, but I just, I, I do feel incredibly sorry for those people who actually did the work and did a lot of work and we're under massive stress um, to uh, work, you know, talking to people all the time um, who are stuck in other countries, you know, trying to get them home in the best way they can and get them protected. And I also am aware that, um, you know, the people, you know, it, it's heartbreaking the stories when people have got somebody dying at home um, and they wanted to say goodbye to them. But on the other oh, hand, they still had to stay in a hotel for a certain number of weeks. So they couldn't just race back off the plane and go and say goodbye to the the dying relative. The whole thing was so stressful to so many people across the world. I just, I don't know, there's no winner in this really. Well, uh, Al, the chief ombudsman did say that he was sympathetic to the environment MB was working in as New Zealand did face an unprecedented set of circumstances and needed to act quickly 
to keep COVID-19 out of the country. So when we go back to those times, things seem to move so fast, Al. Can we recall? It, It was an emergency, and there was time pressure, there were high stakes, there was limited reliable information. And he acknowledges all this, but he also adds, even though it would have been costly and difficult, a more individualized system would have been justifiable. And so it got it largely right, but it could have been better because some circumstances warranted more attention than they got. Right. Stephen? Uh, yes, well, I don't think... Uh, well, I, I agree with Kaz, actually, that um, there's no winners out of this, and I, I, I certainly know also many people in the government system who would work very hard uh, to keep us all safe. I don't think there's any argument, at least... Well, there is an argument about that, I guess, on the part of some people. But right now, the question is... Not so much was it right to close the country down, but was it? Uh, bit, the question really is about uh, the way the system worked. And one one thing I'd like to ask Al, g'day Al, it's good to uh, have you on the on the show here. Um, uh, is um, what are the responsibilities of the New Zealand government mm. to New Zealanders overseas? You know, we have a lot of consular responsibilities in our foreign ministry, but what 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 do you say to this? Reflecting on the words, the comments that Yvonne made a moment ago. Good day, Stephen. Um, the, the basic rules here are that everyone has certain civil rights, that our rights can be overridden in terms of emergency if it's demonstrably justifiable in a free and democratic society. And so when you've got something like a pandemic, it may be justifiable, but that doesn't give you a, a blanket chance to do whatever you want. Okay. And what, what you're getting here is they're, they're saying most of the decisions in, in both the High Court case and Mongitman were largely correct, and, and there's even commendation there for some parts of it. But it could have gone further. It should have been more individualised. It should have had more consultation with Māori in various parts, more consideration of people with disabilities as well. And so the thing here is to learn for the next time. And so the, mm-hmm. the Ombudsman can't make a ruling on an individual person, but he can make recommendations and he can call for apologies. He can't call for an apology from the government minister, but he can call from, for them from the government agency. And the question is whether the minister will apologise. So that is the next question. That's what we are waiting for. Our, uh, always good to have you on. Uh, Professor Gillespie there, Professor of International Law, who has uh, looked at this uh, system uh, right through when it started. Gosh, uh, what a... <laughs> Extraordinary. I think you should. One can say that there did seem to be a lack of flexibility in the way the system was managed. Yeah, and that's exactly what we need to learn from uh, for the future. And didn't uh, and didn't sufficiently allow for individual circumstances to be taken and, into account. And I that, see. That yeah. rather damning comment. We lost sight of our compassion. Yes. Uh, mm. Well, speaks for itself, Wallace, doesn't it? It does. Mm. Uh, the, the, the the feedback is really flowing through on this. I really appreciate uh, uh, that. So kia ora to you all. You can text me 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Here's another one here. My day job as a professional engineer is risk analysis and strategy for some of our big projects. The government's COVID in a, in a MIQ approach was, in this person's opinion, textbook perfect mm. on a totally unknown event. Yes, we had issues, and the lobby system was a bit out there, but we came through much better than so many other countries because they had a big picture and a goal. Did the 1.1 million in the US that died because their strategy was minimal control get a better deal than those in MIQ? Very interesting feedback, Kia ora. 20 past four, the panel.
The National Party's newest MP, Tama Bortak, arrived at Parliament this morning for his first day on the job after he cruised to victory in the Hamilton West by-election Saturday. Portaka won the seat by a margin of more than 2,000 votes, flipping the bellwether electric blue ahead of what's predicted to be a tight race next year. The by-election was caused by the resignation of independent MP Gaurav Sharma, who had been expelled from the Labour Party. He came forth with 1,156 votes. Act came in third. Voters have sent a message to Labour that the country is heading in the wrong direction. That's what Chris Luxton said. Associate Professor Grant Duncan teaches political theory and New Zealand politics at Mass University. Kia ora, Grant. Kia ora, Wallace. What did you take away from the by-election uh, on the weekend, Grant? Well, I like to be a little bit contrary, as you probably know, Wallace, so <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there that this is, was an unexceptional by-election result. It very little about the general election next year. So headlines that we've been seeing, such as major blow for the government, are simply sensationalist. Uh, what this does tell us, unfortunately, uh, is that there's a lack of interest in local representation. And uh, Hamilton West got a lower turnout than we've seen even in, in the recent local government elections. And uh, so just general lack of interest. The result uh, was more or less a return to normal uh, because Tim McIndoe had won uh, Hamilton West four elections in a row. So it's normally a blue seat. Pardon? Yeah, normally... well, for four elections in a row, he won it. Yeah. Now, the, the, the notion, however, um, which is a, a sheep wearing a bell, uh, is, is, an, is an odd metaphor, and I think it's a bit exaggerated. But, it, yeah, it swung to Labour rather heavily along with the rest of the country, and I think... Gaurav Sharma was probably as surprised as anyone to actually win it in 2020. So going back to national, uh, with actually a lower percentage of the vote than Tim McIndoe was getting, is not really particularly exciting. Uh, however, <laughs> having said that, national put forward a great candidate and, mm. and he won fair and square. Well, I was going to say that... Um you know what? What might uh, Tamapotaka bring uh, into the? Uh, what might uh, you know? Uh, he, he do, I guess, with the national. Yeah, well, uh, Tamapotaka comes from Naitaiki Tamaki. That's around the Maraitai Cleveland area in Auckland. Uh, he's a highly qualified guy. He's a lawyer. Um, he's been chief executive of Naitai. Worked for the New Zealand Super Fund. Uh, he's worked for Tainui Group Holdings. Uh, so he really ran ran quite a strong campaign, but. Honestly, National could have put forward any decent candidate in Hamilton West and won it, but the focus on the campaign, according to himself, was uh, was crime. Cass? Um, yeah. Hi, Grant. Nice to, nice Hi, to hear nice from to you. Hear you. Yes. yes. And thank you for your sage uh, advice and opinion, as always. I did <laughs> totally agree with you. I mean, people love in by-elections, don't they, to send a message to the, the current government, you know, to just and, and also Hamilton's been quite um, hard hit by crime as well. Mm. Um, I heard a great line this morning that somebody said, a pity people don't take as much notice as, at, of local government elections as they do of bird of the year, and we might have got more votes. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was really interested in Tama Portaka because I, he just, to me, he is so different for national. He's a different look, different style. Um, the you know lovely pictures of him with his wife with the moko um, after mm. they won. It just seemed to me that is this a is this a turning point for national, or they were just lucky to have someone like him, or uh, it just well, seems to be quite different. Yeah, yeah a bit of both, I guess, Cass. Um, and I think certainly it looks like we're going to get 
uh, not the same kind of um, fallout that we got from the Tauranga action. Um, perhaps we needn't go back to that story. Uh, and yeah, I think definitely uh, the National Party lineup was uh, needing a little bit more uh, diversity, a stronger Māori voice. They now have, well, they, of course, they've already have uh, Māori MPs, but there was a reduction in the diversity of the National Caucus in the last election because of the huge hit that they took. And so, yeah, I definitely think that uh, they've got a strong candidate here. Why is such a low turnout in uh, mm. by-election, uh, Stephen? I mean, if you were there, would would you have voted? Well, I have uh, two very close relatives there, and they both voted. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I would have certainly voted. I think everybody should be voting. It, uh, of, of course, it's not just the public themselves that were turned off this election. Even some political parties, the Green Party, didn't stand a candidate. Uh, you know, so much for democracy. Uh, but, look, I think I agree with the comments of Grant and Kaz. I mean, National Party put up a stellar candidate. Actually, they had at least three stellar candidates they could have put up, uh, which is why I think this says more about the National Party than it does about the Labour Party. Uh, And, uh, you know, let's hope that Tamapotaka can, in Parliament, you know, you know, affect the change to make sure that our major political parties reflect the makeup of, of New Zealand and the diversity of New Zealand. Very good. Hey, uh, Grant, kia ora. Thank you for your time again. Cool. That's Dr. Grant Duncan there from Massey uh, University. Uh, they just keep on rolling through in regarding your experiences uh, in terms of uh, MIQ. Oh, and I've got to say this right now that um, Chief Ombudsman Peter Boshia, he's, he released the findings today into the MIQ, hundreds of complaints, and there is a lot of support coming through uh, on MIQ, actually. So we may read some more out um, either today or sometime in the week. Put it in the Friday mailbag. Anyway, look, it's a couple of weeks out from Christmas. And after a brutal year, many of us will be wanting to why don't I shut off the news and focus on a blooming good book. So I'm going to ask our panel for the final two weeks of the show to suggest a book, a book for the beach, a book for a sunny corner of your house, a book for when you're feeling like a whale on Christmas night and just want some time by yourself. So around the panel on this, Cass Carter. Do I only get you, one? Though? Well, That's you can mean. you can you can you can <laughs> sneak in a second, but if there is a people often remember just one, mm. and I'll do it across the next fortnight. What's a book? That you can suggest us to read. So I have to have two. I'm sorry, I just do. Um, but one of them, um, I, I reread it. The five people you meet in heaven, which is Mitch Album who wrote that um, book, Sundays with Maury, and it's it's the whole thing around what happens after you die and is there really afterlife and all that sort of thing. But it's done in a really curious sort of personal way, which is a great book and it's very um, um, uplifting, I suppose. So I think it's the perfect thing for around Christmas. Um, but the other one is just out. Um, Jacqueline Bublitz, she's a new Kiwi living in Melbourne and she wrote a book called Before You Knew My Name. And she it was um, her response to the whole Grace Mullane um tragedy when um, she was murdered um, about the fact Mm. that you keep hearing about the person who's accused of murder and then the victim just sort of disappears and so it's told from the um, it's told from the voice of the woman who has been murdered and I know it sounds horrendous but it is actually incredibly uplifting as well and it's a really interesting take that I've never heard before so there you go. Very very cool thank you Cass all right 
Stephen. Uh, well, for me, it's a book uh, by Robert Harris called Act of Oblivion. The Act of Oblivion was a piece of legislation uh, that was passed at the restoration of King Charles II, uh, forgiving the um, uh, all those who worked to um, uh, bring down the monarchy. Uh, but it's about the, it's the story of how those who had signed the death warrant of King Charles I, the so-called regicides, were pursued across to uh, New England. It's a novel. Uh, and um, Robert Harris is just one of my favorite authors. The really good thing about this book is if you want to know while American politics is so crazy, uh, and particularly with a religious bent, you want to read this book because it'll, it'll show you how the Puritan influence uh, comes through still uh, this uh, today. This sounds amazing. Act of Oblivion. Couldn't put it down. Seriously. That's what I'm talking about. Both of you. This is fantastic. What a great wee segment. So it's going to be 14 days uh, of recommendations. Cass Carter um, has just reread Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, who wrote Son of Mori. Also, Before You Knew My Name by Jacqueline Bublitz. And Stephen Jacoby here says Act of Oblivion by Robert Harris. A brilliant novel about the executioner's of Charles I. And still your feedback keeps coming. Wallace, says Katie, my teenage son was stuck in Australia eight months from July to March. We went into the MIQ lottery every time. Yes, futile. Yes, distressing. But I hope your audience is also asking themselves, what was the alternative? I think the best and only thing was done with knowledge available at the time. Please make sure you're not all thinking about the COVID measures in hindsight. I think everything was fantastically well handled and New Zealand has come out the other end in the best shape of most countries, says Katie. Now another one. I have a dear friend who got peritonitis 10 days before her and her New Zealand family were due to fly home from the US and spend their acquired time in MIQ. They were relocating back to New Zealand after three years offshore. Due to the emergency surgery, she couldn't fly and therefore lost the slot in MIQ. Heartless. Low-level officials making ill-informed and biased decisions. They lost eight months and tens of thousands of dollars. An apology is the least this government can do. You're on the panel, RNZ National. 